to the cycle. Great guest today, guys. I'm so excited to have David Pepper on my show. I hooked up with him on a podcast or some live show, and I was like, ooh, I'm using this opportunity to impress him and lure him into the cycle. And mission or mischief managed, here he is today. Who's David Pepper? You guys have to know this. He's the author of one of the most important books to come out last year, Laboratories of Autocracy. Um, a wake-up call from behind the lines. And why I say that is because it is put, it's drawing attention to the fact that actually the Republican Party might look like a bunch of hapless morons who fail to deliver on their promises like repeal and replace or build the wall. And that's all true at the national level. But that's all cover for what they've been up to at the state level where they've been reflipping federalism uh, enhancing greatly the power of the states and then using that state power to come after civil liberties and uh, their political opponents. So, David, so glad to have you on the show today. It's good to be back together. Like, like you said, we were on a podcast a few months ago and I, within about 10 seconds, I thought, I, I'm glad we're here together because this is someone we can all learn from. So it's good to be back with you. I feel exactly the same about you, and I got to tell you, as a person that spent a good chunk of my career teaching the American 101, American Politics 101 course, let me tell you, <laughs> getting kids to care about the state level, local level stuff, getting anyone to care about it, really challenging, um, but I did spend a lot of time talking about how States have, uh, you know, this role that Brandeis, Justice Brandeis, coined this idea that at the state level, because of the federalist system that we have and the autonomy that the, the states get with it, what we call laboratories of democracy, right? They can go and try things that the federal government can't do. And probably the most relevant thing in terms of mass voter behavior or the mass public is this idea of direct democracy, the citizen initiative process, which some states like California and Oregon um, made a big part of their systems. And that allows people, the public, to weigh in on policy issues. Generally, in our representative style democracy, the pub policy making is diffused. It's a, a couple um, steps away from the direct voter. And so laboratories of democracy have allowed pot to become first medical pot, then legal pot. And, um, you know, that has changed the lives of millions of people, uh, both in terms of criminal justice, but just in terms of, of living, right, or living with medical conditions. So uh, it's not an all bad thing, but David talks about something that has changed over the last 20 years, not by accident, or, <laughs> you know, it's an articulated change, and that is that Republicans have been using their state governments to explore autocracy. David, can you tell us about that? Sure. I mean, for the for the very reason that Brandeis figured out, you know, states have a lot of power. Most people don't know about it. And that includes power over almost everything we care about in politics, um, be it sort of general issues like the economy or taxes or the most, you know, hotly debated social issues, be it a woman's right to choose or equality. And those states can control those issues as much as the federal government. But the states also have another power. They write a lot of the rules of our democracy. And so what a generation ago, a lot of right-wingers figured out, like the Koch brothers, the states were a perfect place to go to get really unpopular things done that they would never otherwise be able to achieve at other levels, or at least consistently. So they, as my book is, is titled, without even trying to be cute, they really have been operating for some time 
as laboratories of autocracy, but also places that are basically able to push through a minority agenda that is in the minority of that state, also an agenda that is deeply failing in most ways you can measure it, but because they can rig state houses to be essentially unaccountable, they're able to get it done repeatedly and over time. So it's basically taking Brandeis' sort of positive vision of states and flipping on its head. And if you know you're in the minority, which which the smarter conservatives know, like look at Mitch McConnell telling Rick Scott to shut up, right? They know they're in the minority. So if you know that, going through states and state houses where no one's paying attention is actually the smartest way for them to get their agenda through, and they've been doing it for a generation. And we, the American people, have made it extraordinarily easy on them, right? Because let's think about like what you just said, and I think this is so important for people to realize, it is true that a state like Mississippi or Oklahoma, their abortion, like public opinion, is less supportive of abortion, especially unre- you know, completely um, hands-off regulation, than in California or New York or something like that. But that said, none of these states have an electorate, not even a conservative red state like Texas, that wants to get rid of abortion. None of them, okay? And, 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 and what David is pointing out is, A, not only did a generation ago Republicans figure out, wow, we have a really un- deeply unpopular radical agenda, and we can never do it federally, but we can sneak it through the states if we buy ourselves some politicians, get them in a system that is self-sustaining, i.e. gerrymander, right? They challenge the courts to make sure that, you know, speech and money are tangled, political speech. It's all part of a, a, a long-term strategy, strategic plan, right? And, and like, when we think about, you know, the public, the reaction, there is a national, like, Twitter and, and Beltway media tuffle when Oklahoma signs a bill that bans abortion. But David, let me ask you this. All this minority tyranny, is it generating outright rage in the states uh, in which it is occurring? It does to some degree. Like you said, that Texas law is unpopular in Texas, the one attacking Roe v. Wade. The laws in Ohio aren't. But here's the problem, and and this is something that, that I know you think about politically, but it's also a legal problem. The reason they can keep going, even if it does generate a reaction, and there are moments where it creates a huge reaction, to the individual office holders who push those things, the reaction, even if it's intentionally negative, never impacts them. They never knew, lose their next election. They never are held accountable in court. So for them, let's say the law is struck down as unconstitutional. They don't care. They get reelected. Or let's say, you know, we had a referendum on an anti-labor law in 11 that Kasich pushed. It lost everywhere. But the people who voted for it didn't lose. So there's even if there is a fierce reaction, a few days of media, or even bigger, this system is set up in states where the individual office holder themselves never feels accountability. And in the end, that's all they care about. If, if a law is struck down, well, they're not paying the legal bill for that. The taxpayers are. Um, they themselves never pay the price, so they never stop pushing forward, win or lose. Yeah, and to be clear, the 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 like the armor that they wear that that shelters them from political price, what we'll call democratic accountability in a second, um, the armor is simply the R next to their name because in our system, ninety percent of voters are making their vote decisions based on party, right? And so it doesn't matter if you have a reputation of, of, you know, being a child molester. If you've got that R in Alabama, you've got this baked-in support network. And at the end of the day, 
anywhere where they've gerrymandered, especially to enhance that population advantage, there just isn't an option to hold corrupt people accountable. So it could be an individual corruption issue, or it could be something, you know, in involving policy and, and, and um, you know, whatever. But it, there, there's no democratic accountability. And because of that, what we've seen within the Republican Party is a complete erosion of of within of internal party accountability as right well. and so what's ha what's happened in some states it's the r but it's also you know the the gerrymander in ohio and i go through this in my book basically not a single almost to a person not a single member of the 62 member majority they have out of 99 seats have fa faced anything close to a close election over 10 years a few did but almost all of them are in blowout seats so they have no accountability uh, and what we've learned, you know, we have a lot of ex expectations and incentives we think lead to good behavior in a robust democracy. You know, you're, in theory, you're supposed to want good public outcomes. Then you go tell the voters, you get reelected. In theory, you're supposed to push for popular things. Then you tell people about them, you get reelected. It turns out in a world of no accountability, almost every incentive that we think leads to good behavior is flipped. Public outcomes no longer matter. So you can deliver the worst schools, the worst health care, the worst wages, and you're reelected no matter what. Being extreme is rewarded because it, it avoids your next primary. So we, we have in these states like Ohio all the reverse incentives from what we think of as good public service. And, and because there's no accountability, it only gets worse. And because they're never held accountable, there's never any reason for them to stop doing what they're doing or actually stop doubling down and that's what we're especially seeing especially why they have a perfectly legit scapegoat that they can use every election cycle and that's us right that's so they're true. causing these troubles and then they pin them politically on us by their unique uh asymmetric electioneering system which is outward focused right it wins elections by default right. its job is to turn the electorate off of the opposition party not to sell the existing modern republican party's platform it certainly was different back in the 80s before polarization and that's why polarization is is a thing it's not some buzzword it is it, it talks or expresses a quantifiable distinction in behavior all the way from the uh, base level average voters up to uh, political elites from the era that we're living in now and the era that we used to live in in which democratic accountability still occurred right no a great example of that right now is recently you know ohio has literally led the nation for most of the last decade when it came to the pain of the opioid crisis the current governor was the attorney general, I actually ran against him at the time, who did nothing on the opioid crisis. But he always would have press conferences, then he announced a 12-point plan, he's been governor for three years, it's still through the roof. Well, now it's Joe Biden's fault. <laughs> Even though he failed at, when we had a Trump, failed before that, Ohio is uniquely doing, poor, doing horribly when it comes to the opioid crisis. Well, as you just said, now that we have an election, it's Joe Biden's border policies that have created uh, the, the opioid crisis here. And that's that's what they're going to say the rest of the campaign. So exactly. They they are failing on their own right. But, yeah, come campaign time, they just blame the people who, frankly, have very little control over the direction of the state of Ohio. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's all by design, too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, <laughs> you know, yeah, so I mean, here's the thing with DeWine and, and opioids, right? So, like, the, the, they only can get away with that because we, we just assume, well, people are going to know that's not right. Right. Oh, my God. If there is one thing 
that kills us and cripples us more than anything else on the left. It's this concept of naive realism, which is the assumption that because you have this certain intellect and worldview and life experience and perspective, right, that the world thinks mostly like you, even if you're able to recognize like people are different, you really can't understand, oh, okay, I am not everyone, right? Everyone does not think and feel like this. No one knows about the Republicans' secret plan to raise taxes on the middle class and end Social Security and Medicare, right? The assumption that just because it was covered in the news cycle three days ago or three months ago or whatever, that it's dead news, right? I mean, only Democrats would come up with something like that, that this idea that it has to be this week, this month for it to matter to voters. Yeah, no, I, I agree. We, we, um, we engage in that a lot. The, the, when I saw the the Mike DeWine push on that, I because I ran against him, I actually immediately started uh, pulling out the old videos from 14 where he was running around the state promising to do something about opioids to try and remind people. But you're right. We For the most part, we hope they know better. We assume they know better. Or we think if one or two days of us saying something, that that's somehow going to change the, the historical record in their mind. So, yeah, it's – but you're right. They have – as I point out in my book – Part and parcel with these corrupt and rigged state houses are horrific public outcomes. You know the the energy grid freezing in Texas, the four days of uh, four days of school a week in Kansas. But if we don't hammer really really hard at those issues, then people don't know it or they don't think it's so bad. One of my worries about Ohio, by almost any measure, Ohio is failing. You know we're the number one state in the country when it comes to student debt. On the young people, on our young people's shoulders. I said we, we're one of the leading states in the opioid crisis. Our economy, our poverty rate, others are are paltry compared to what Ohio should be. But in a way, unless someone points it out, people just assume, well, that's normal, and that we're just doing whatever other states doing when we're not. So I think you, yes, you really have to hammer it away and make it plain to people that this brand of leadership that has taken over state houses like Ohio's is leading to indefensible outcomes. And and if you look around the country. The people who are winning campaigns in tougher states are the ones who've done that especially well. Yeah, I mean, if you think about like um, like the difference in strategic approach between the right and the left, right? I mean, the the right under it's, they've been in charge of rural America now for twenty years, right? And yet, and, and the outcomes have just been a shit show for those areas. I mean, they have rape, raped, plundered, stealed, and burned down rural America over the last 20 years, right? Uh, the things that have gone well for rural America have by and large been generated by Democrats, right? They got the ACA, um, which provided healthcare, you know, all these, um, you know, COVID relief stuff. I mean, the, the Grinches in the White House, the Republican Party and, and the Republican controlled Senate, if, if it had not flipped over to Biden and Democrats, people would have just been left to suffer, right? right? People would have started losing their homes. People would have been kicked out of their houses because unemployment went back to, to a, you know, a non-living wage. People have no idea what they avoided by Democrats being in office. And that's because instead of telling these voters and just America writ large, because really this is a message for everybody, look, the Republican Party had their way for 30, 40 years. They, they instituted a radical economic philosophy that ended up 
decimating America's middle class. We don't even have the biggest middle class anymore. It's in Canada. We can see it from our porch, right? right. So, um, you know, instead of wanting to go in there and prosecute the case and be like, hey, rural voters or voters in Ohio, the Republican Party has utterly fucking failed you. Let me show you how. Right. right. <laughs> we think the way to win is to go in there and be like, hey, we brought you some broadband, which would be fine in a normal, healthy system. But guys, we're not up against that. We're against a system that's going to be telling people we want to defund the police. We're all socialist. We want Mexicans to come up here and rape your, your daughter. Right. I mean, that's literally what their message is about us. And you cannot win. A, 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 you If you're doing a conversation about government and the other side is doing nothing but rhetorical politics, Good luck. Yeah, no, I agree. One of the towns I highlight in my book, and I, I'm there quite often, I do videos from there, is called Manchester. And it's about 60 miles from Cincinnati. And literally, you walk down the street, it's like a ghost town. Half the, half the, um, half the buildings are empty, broken glass. If you're normal, it actually pisses you off when you see it. You're like, what in the God's name are we allowing to happen in America that this town looks like this? And it, it's the victim of a generation of trickle-down, underinvestment, and again, it's it's voting for Republicans. In fact, one of the stories I put in my book is the, the citizens of that town actually called their Republican state senator to meet with them, uh, and they asked him, what are you going to do about the fact that our town's falling apart? They knew it was falling apart. He said, because of gerrymandering, he knows he can't lose. Well, sometimes you guys just have to move. So they're not only destroying these places, they're so confident in their rigged districts, they can even tell the people, yeah, pretty much you got to go. But we don't come in hard enough to say to them, listen, this is a result of X, Y, and Z, and it's crushing you. And you know what's interesting is people, we saw this when I, so I was chair of the party a few years ago in Ohio, we actually were able to win mayor's races. In some of these towns, the Trump had won 60-40, party ID was not on the ballot, and they came in and pointed out that their town was falling apart and they needed to change. And so we had one case, like a 24-year-old beat a Republican incumbent mayor saying that, and he won 60-40 in a town won 60-40. So they know their, their communities are struggling. I mean, you can't help but see it. But And the right message can get it done, as those mayors shown. But if it right now in the battle of the two brands in these places, one brand is is clearly not doing very well. Well, even if you get a good conversation about it, I mean, like, you know, the uh, Senate nominee for the Democrats, Tim Ryan over there, like he's a great candidate and one of the best at articulating a strong brand economically for Democrats. But even still, like he's not trained to go out there and and really lay it at the feet of the Republican Party. And that's not his fault. Our whole system, and, and it ties again back to that naive realism component, thinks that if they say corporations outsourced all your jobs and sent them overseas, somehow magically the voter understands, oh, that's the Republican Party. Right. Okay? <laughs> like, right. that's not how this shit works, okay? Average people, if the reason that, the, the, if you look at all the Republican advertising, all of it, direct mail, debates, primary ads, general ads, the one common theme in every fucking thing they do is us, dude. They say Democrats, Democrats, Democrats. Right. There's one villain all the time, and it's Democrats. Sometimes they'll they'll specify Joe Biden because he's the president, but it's the Democrats that you who's to blame the Democrats. And ours is well, we need to have gerrymandering and corporations and big banks right. and and money and shit, right? And I what I'm trying to teach people is like, no, you gotta take the horse 
to the river and make him drink. Right. <laughs> you want people to to blame the to associate their shit show that's happening in the Midwest with Republican economics because it's Reaganomics. The story of the Midwest is the Reagan revolution, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what's not... Just because Bill fucking Clinton passed NAFTA once doesn't mean that they don't own the policy, dude. Right. We need to go and hammer the shit out of them yeah. on Reaganomics. No, I... Well, and, and by the way, we've done one other thing bad is we've also made it all about are you like or do you support trump and i put in my book that's too narrow there are a lot of republicans who don't necessarily not not that many but some in ohio has one in like rob portman once you make the 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 litmus test are you just like trump or not a lot of other republicans doing some really bad things you kind of let off the hook and one reason i think we saw republicans do better down ticket in 20 is we made it all about never trump or for trump and people voted for Biden and then voted Republican that's the rest of the way because we didn't draw the negative brand broad enough. That's exactly right. And I yeah, think yeah, it, it gave cover. Failure. And so Frank, like our Secretary failure. of State yeah. in Ohio, he 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 kind of it tries to be more civil. He gives this image of being bipartisan. He has been suppressing the vote, doing ridiculous things with gerrymandering. But if we only think about are you for or are you sort of like Donald Trump or not, he gets a pass. And we can't let that happen anymore. So yeah, we almost are like we almost you know excused the Republican brand uh, by making it only about Trump. And my attitude, and I wrote this in my book, the deeper attack happening in states right now began before Trump ever ran. And if he's locked up tomorrow because of January 6th, it will continue as if he was never there. Yes. And so when yes. we judge, I, I joke about it. It'd be like literally saying when when Jim Crow was coming. Are, are you for like Andrew Johnson? That was irrelevant. That's a one-time figure in what's happening in these states is much deeper and longer lasting than the president who we've had. Now, he'll make it a lot worse, obviously, if he wins again. But if you don't – and this is the other thing. It, this also isn't because of the big lie. If Donald Trump had admitted he lost the election, the voter suppression and attack through state houses would have been just the same as it is now. Now, it wouldn't have the big lie attached to it. But they didn't start that because of the big lie. That's just one other justification for it. But the deeper attack on democracy from the Republican Party is far sort of it, it preceded Trump and it will be here long after he's gone. Yeah, Trump is not a cause. He's a symptom. Right, okay? exactly. Yeah, And the cause, I mean, you know, to, to if we want to get all metaphysical about shit, the cause is this. And it's the reason why you see it in every Western democracy. For a long time, not all of humanity's time, but most of it, there has been a clear power structure, and that has been men over women. And then if you just concise yourself down to the rise of dominant European culture, you know, it's been white dudes, right? (laughs) And now, like, you know, in the 1950s, 60s, you get the first toothful civil and voting rights legislation from Congress. They're not just, they don't just have teeth, they have jaws and shark teeth. And it totally redefines elections in the South and enfranchises black voters in one fell sweep, basically, right? Um, and, and and then you have women's rights at the same time. You get Roe, you get Griswold, which, which allowed us to have contraceptive, 
stuff, which is why they hate that. And then you have Roe and, and uh, all the abortion cases. So women's liberation hits Title IX, right? And you have the courts. The courts saying, you know what? You can't have Bible readings in school. You can't start school day off. There's a separation, a wall between church and state. And all of these changes um, are combined with the, the immigration reforms in 65, which for the first time opened up immigration to non-white countries, basically. And so the male white hegemony is collapsing. And it has taken 50 years of the du jour changes to cause de facto momentum in this. But they're feeling the heat, guys. And they're fighting a war against us. They're not going gently into the night. <laughs> and and uh, we have to accept that we must paint them all with a broad brush the way that they paint us with a broad brush or we won't lose the argument. We will lose the yeah. argument. No, it's true. I mean, one of the most consistent trends of our nation's history is a history of white, fierce white backlash whenever a diverse majority, new majority rises. And I go through this in the book as well. That the the one of the clearest examples of this is is what happened after the Civil War. It feels like a long time ago, but the parallels to now are so scary that uh, you know blacks started registering by huge numbers in the South in the 1870s. At one point, more black voters than white voters in Louisiana and very close to equality in terms of registered voters in other southern states to the point where they were electing uh, black mayors and legislators and speakers. And then you saw the fierce vote, the fierce backlash that said, oh, they're all voting fraudulently. We have to knock them off the rolls through all sorts of different things. And it won. And that's what led to Jim Crow for 80 years was a white backlash against a more diverse majority and, you know, others have written this, and I, I'm not the expert on it, but th there was nothing that symbolized that more in recent history than Obama winning. And and not just Obama winning, not just in who he was historically, but in the Obama coalition getting its way. A diverse majority got its way in that election. And what do we see in 2011, whenever they, their first chance? An immediate attack on that Obama coalition. Purging, voter ID, gerrymandering. And in 2021, what happened? Of 2020? Same. To, and by the way, we also saw birtherism, the rise of Trump, all a backlash to Obama winning. And then, of course, in 20, that same diverse coalition comes together to elect Biden and Kamala Harris. And now we're seeing attacks on them. So, yeah, it's this very bleak uh, pattern that, 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 that comes back again and again. And the lesson from that old example is if you don't fight back in the moment it's happening and we have to fight back now, you can have it. You can have the backlash literally in place for generations, like Jim Crow. Once you no lose doubt. it, if no you doubt. lose your, if you lose the mechanism that allowed the diverse majority to, you know, exert itself politically, it can be gone for generations. And my worry is if we don't get real smart right now, and this is why I wrote this book sort of frantically over like four months. If we don't get smart real, real quick about what it is, why it happens. And there are other. There's also a huge economic interest from the Koch brothers. So it sort of is a bunch of pretty dark motivations converging in one movement. But if you don't fight it at it directly as it's happening, you could lose your your democracy for a long time to come. And that's what and that's, that's what should motivate is, all of us. Oh, exactly. Because you know, I, here's the thing that the common thread when you look at all these collapsed uh, democracies is that there's no, they don't panic in time. They do not freak out 
when there's still time to fight it back. And I gotta be honest with folks, like, what we're talking about here is the Republican Party has experienced an entire civil war over the course of the 2010s, okay? The media never talks about this, never provides this context, but the Republican coalition, the party that we're looking at today, both at the elected level and within these party uh, orgs at the state and local levels, is fundamentally different than it was 10 years ago. <laughs> they had a purging and then they had a civil war and that culminated with the 2013 autopsy report that Reince Priebus put out that said, look, we can't isolate voters of color and women and still win national elections. And somebody else looked at it and said, yeah, we can if we just keep people from voting, right? And, you know, to be fair to the Republicans, though, they, they are not they don't just crawl into a ball and die, right? They figured out we're gonna we're on the wrong side of this numbers game. There's no benefit to making good government because it helps the other party when they're in power. So they turned they abandoned governing a decade ago and have turned to a full opposition style of leadership in in the, like the institutions, not just it's permanent campaign even in that role of speaker of the house or whatever, right? And it's so important for people to understand. You, what we are up against in this this current Republican machine, they made a conscious decision. Okay, what we could we could moderate, we could go big tent, or we could go full white autocracy, white grievance politics, white autocracy. That's where you start to see the Putin sympathizing stuff um, trekking in. And this was a strategic choice that the party married, and now they understand it is a do or die for them, right? They have invested in the strategy. They have structured their whole party, including the, the party leader, Ronna McDaniel, around this mission, and they are all in. We don't get a choice to be in this war or not. They declared the war. The war is in progress. And the question is, are we just going to go down with a, without even a whimper? Right. And, and, and the, I, I hope the contribution my book makes is to say, and for them, the greatest institution advancing in that war are state houses because they can do almost everything they need done, far more than they can do in Congress, through every state house because those state houses, again, not only control every issue that they care about in that war, and we could see it with this CRT stuff, we see it with everything else they're doing, but state houses can get them to a point of lack of accountability so they can push it even if it's unpopular, even if it generates disastrous outcomes – and all stay in office. So I, I I agree completely on where they are, and the you and, and they are keen-eyed enough to know this the place where they can get most of what they want done in an ongoing way is state after state. And that's the other problem with our side. We're still not fighting that battle. We we are leaving it to them to in, in to be on offense in the place where being on offense benefits them the most. And we basically have looked the other way because we get we we like to get excited about individual candidates, usually federal, that that get our you know that get us all fired up, and and they don't care about that. They just care about controlling the institutions that let them get this agenda done. And and we have to we have to be smarter about how we campaign, but we also have to be smarter about where the war really is and how do we fight back at all levels of it. No, I mean, well, they've got an. Or I mean, nothing that they're doing is an accident. It's all purposely designed it's a strategic long term they have one year plans five year plans 10 year plans we're sitting on the 20th year of their first versions of this where they have built and institutionalized things like turning point usa the um, federalist society 
ALEC, which I want you to tell listeners a little bit about why they're so efficient in the state legislative realm, is because of ALEC, right? So can you tell them a little bit about that? Sure. So basically what, what they figured out, and I go through this, is these current, these legislators that are in these undemocratic state houses, and that's essentially what they are, they respond to certain, they don't care about public outcomes. They don't care if something is unpopular. They care about making certain well-heeled insiders really happy. So ALEC is the American Legislative Legislative Exchange Council. And they basically hardwired state houses knowing exactly what these legislators want, which is, you know, to, to, to work with these insiders. Basically, corporations are writing legislation in some conference room at some nice city somewhere where they all go to these conferences that are paid for by the outside groups. And then they all fly back into their state houses and pass these bills as if they were largely written in state, which most of them weren't. And what the reason I call the book Laboratories of Autocracy is because as they do this work, not only are we seeing the same bills presented all over the country in these state houses, but every time any of these state houses pushes something forward, all the other states in the ALEC network learn from it. So if something is, look, if that Roe v. Wade attack in Texas passes and isn't struck down, every other state will do it. It'll look almost the exact same. If it's struck down, the little ALEC network or big ALEC network, they will all correct for it, rewrite it to correct for why it was struck down, and then they'll all pass it again. So it'd be bad enough if each state house were working in the ways I'm describing on its own. But what ALEC has done is essentially harnessed or I'd say sort of weaponized state houses and connected them all so that they're all serving this far right wing agenda at the same time. And every year they learn more from their failures and their successes. And so it is accelerating because they're sort of always perfecting how they do it. And that's when when you say, you know, they aren't as crazy as they seem or they're not as inept. They love that we're watching Marjorie Taylor Greene say something crazy every day. They love that that's all that we talk about. Because in the meantime, they're off having conferences where hundreds of people, just like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who we've never heard of, are ramming through laws that attack our democracy or our rights every single day. And every time one person does it in one state, all the other states, you know, glom on and do the same thing. And it, it, so it's accelerating. You know, it began and a lot of it began in 11 when they controlled a lot of these places. It picked up a lot of speed after 16. And now it's exploding all over in all the different bills. I mean, banning books, censoring history. I mean, this is sort of five-alarm fire stuff when it comes to democracy. Yeah, you think? Yeah. I mean, I would call it a nuclear Absolutely. DEFCON 1. <laughs> and it's yeah, all coming at once. One. And it's because, you know, and by the way, the other thing that's happened is ALEC was sort of the original group. But now the other groups are all learning from the ALEC model, which yes. is these state and, houses and David, are easy to harness. We still have nothing to respond to ALEC. And it, you know what? It is maybe now reached perfection, like their voter coalitional turnout strategy that I was talking about makes a state like Ohio incredibly difficult for us to win if we're not replicating that strategy, right? They have perfected this shit. They, it is no, now it's not just that we're behind. Okay? They're now running a perfect fucking weapon. They are. The no, and that's why, you know, right? and so Heritage yeah. Foundation is the one that's perfecting the vote, the, the suppressing vote and democracy uh, stuff. Others are, you know, Federal Society is doing it with the legal strategy. So, yeah, there really are. Now, ALEC has become a model of other groups 
doing the same thing for other types of bills. Um, so yeah, it really is. Uh, it, it, that's sort of the point of my book is, is, is they, they are always learning and they're always improving. You know, we saw it after just a little basic example. You know, the attempt to attack collective bargaining in Ohio was a disaster by John Kasich. A major reason it was a disaster. It went down everywhere. It was because they included police and fire unions in the attack on collective bargaining. And that became the face of the opposition. Ever since, attacks on collective bargaining in other states do not include police and fire. They learned that lesson painfully. And in that very simple way, they're always learning. You know, they they and tried. Yes, yeah, that, exactly. We like not having a brain trust is killing us, okay? Because like at the at the end of the day, like what I mean, we don't have an Alec, we don't have a judicial watch, we don't have a Federalist Society, we don't have any of the shit. We don't have a couple billionaires that are plying us full full of money, helping us recruit young people and indoctrinate them. We have none of that shit because we have no brain trust. There is no one in charge. There is no one to call. There's no general. There's no war room. There's no war cabinet. And unless we fix it today, we're going to be in real trouble. And the people depending on us are going to be in worse trouble. And here's the other key for them, in addition to everything you just said. It all gets back to no accountability. If there was accountability for passing bad laws, they could do it once and they'd lose. But because they are in these undemocratic districts, these gerrymandered districts, and because they suppress the vote of the opposition— the reason that this ALEC repeat experiment laboratory model works is they can try it once or twice or three or four times, fail every time, learn the mistake by the fifth and then pass it, and they never lost office. So what we, we really have – I was on the phone a call like this with James Carville the other day. We have an accountability crisis or a lack of accountability crisis that they can break the law. They can pass hugely unpopular things, but because they never worry, they just keep doing it and doing it doing it. In a lot of places where Democrats are, you pass one crazy, controversial, disastrous law, you will lose the next election. So you don't even do it. Their world, they never lose. So they just don't care if they fail five times. As as long as they succeed on the sixth time, they got it done. And that's how they're operating in dozens of states around the country. Yeah, but they're also winning. So this, we're going to close out on this critical point, okay? It's true, but they are also winning in swing races. Right. right. So Ron DeSantis is is the front runner in governor, uh, Florida. He's probably going to get reelected in Florida. He's one of the most radical politicians in the whole fucking country. But since we will never bother to tell anybody that, he will run in. So they're not just unaccountable now in their gerrymandered districts. They're unaccountable now in the swing districts too. And you know, if twenty twenty didn't teach Democrat, we still have half the Democratic Party. Candidates, consultants, strategists, whatever, all the way up and down, running around telling people politics is local, okay? It's not local. It hasn't been local in a long time. We must present an equally compelling national brand offensive or we're all going to (laughs) die. Right. No, that's a – by the way, just so people know, there are positives in my book too about what we can do. I'm I'm not only here to tell you – and your answer is everything you do every day to try and fix that brand – I go through all sorts of ways in the book that, that you know, I, I think we all need to wake up to what it, the scene really is. I think that's key. People have the energy, but we, we need to stop fighting the same bad battle. Um, well, but- that and I want to know why, right? Like, I want to fucking know why we're 20 years in 
We've had, I mean, for, I used to be the people who listen to this pod, okay? I used to be them in 2004, listening to shit like you, you and me talk about things like Alec, okay? So, like, if I could get Carvel on the horn, you know, what I want to know is why haven't we done any of this shit, right? And, and the excuse that we're not an organized party, blah, 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 bull fucking shit, okay? We are the smartest people in the country, we, we are experts in organization. We should be killing these people, right? I mean, not killing them, <laughs> but killing them in politics. They're, it's a total shit show. And we don't even want, we don't even have a system in place, you know, and, and I just think the excuse is, it's, to me, it's just not an excuse. The reason I'm motivated every day is because I just refuse to accept anymore that we're not going to have an ALEC. We're not going to have a Federalist Society and that we're just going to hope that people will read the news and know what's happening all on their own because we're never going to tell them the Republican Party has lost its fucking mind. No, I, I um, one of the things that, that lately has bothered me is along the same lines. You know that famous quote, you know, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. It's it's sort of what you're saying. That leaves some kind of sense that we're inevitably going to go the right way. It just happens. And we have to fight to bend the, the arc of the moral universe. Because yes. just like we want to bend it one way, there are a whole lot of people, we talk about white backlash, who are working really hard to bend it the other way. It's not inevitable. It's not automatic. It only ha every success has come through people like women suffragists or John Lewis putting their life on the line for their entire lives to bend it. And, and I, I, I think this is sort of our, our flaw right in America. We just sort of assume democracy is intact no matter what because it's like mom America, American apple pie. That's also well, not look at the, the case. Way the media yeah. has not been able to under – the media has not been able to accept – that we're in democratic collapse, right? right. So it, it never fucking talks about that. It might talk some of, about some components of it, but it never tells the story, holy shit, <laughs> like we're half a foot into Hungary over here. No, right I, and I put, you know, I, my first slide when I do a PowerPoint to people is, I say, what would happen if another country had the following things happen all at once? You know, they, they rig every outcome of a legislative election so they, the minority wins no matter what. They're, they're attacking independent courts. They're banning books and censoring history. You know, on and on and on. And, and the truth is, if we saw that in another country, we would all say, my God, they're losing democracy. It's happening in most states of our country right now. And we kind of say, yeah, they're going after voting rights. We don't really call it out for what it is. So no, I think we really have our blinders on because it's too close to see it. And we just assume, oh, it's America. That wouldn't happen. But the, 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 the sequence of steps happening all at once in many of these states is exactly what's happened in, in places like Hungary. And, and like, as we said, there are five alarm fires happening. When, when you are ban I mean, we're in a moment where we're banning books and telling teachers they're going to get, you know, fired if they talk about the real history of our country, including white backlash, which we talked about earlier. I'm sure that's part of what's being banned. And we, you know, let alone like changing the rules about protests. And only one type of protester really gets in trouble for that kind of protest, you know, et cetera. I mean, that's the same time we're watching Putin lock up protesters in, in St. Petersburg. But over there, when we see it, it looks terrible. Here they legislate it. They say you could be held, you know, immune from running someone over who's protesting. And it's just like every other day in the news. I mean, it's just really no, we're not shit. seeing and it for what it is. 
And think about it. I mean, this is the year, this is the 10th like year, basically. So we, we are in a democratic collapse situation now, but we were in democratic crisis, instability, then crisis, then collapse. And yet over this decade, the media has never been able to make that transition, right? And uh, God, David, I'm so glad you wrote this book. I'm so glad you came on the pod today. I could talk to you about this and other things forever, but I am going to urge all of my listeners, all of my Twitter followers, please read this book from David. It's an excellent, excellent book, and maybe it will help uh, if we had a lot of people to read it, get some of the motion running on, on getting these institutions, these war institutions that we need if we're going to survive this and help the people that we think we want to help because there's no one is going to lose more than the people that we supposedly care about. Absolutely. No, they're, they are paying the price every day for these, these, these state houses are literally taking most of the public assets or a whole lot of them and shipping in their private people and the people and everyday people are paying the price for that and worse healthcare, no infrastructure, small towns dying, public schools dying. I mean, that's part of the MO of the place. And Everyday people are paying a price every day for it. And we got to tell them who did it to them. It's the Republican Party, and they're coming for the rest. Absolutely. (laughs) All right, dude. Hey, great pod today. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Great talking to you. Keep doing what you're doing. Ah, You too, buddy.